I just want to say right up front, if you already watched the stream of this, there's no real reason to watch this video. This is more for people who don't watch the streams, because uh, I have nothing new to add that I didn't say on stream. With that out of the way, it was a real treat going through this game again. It was interesting looking into the behind the scenes of it a little bit. Uh, this was when Ega really started becoming uh, a major part of the franchise and started pushing into it. It wasn't actually his game, but we learned a lot of the development of this game from him and from interviews from him. And they were trying to push it, and what's funny is there was a lot of pushback from Konami, because of course there was. Uh, not only from the fact that it was a 2D game, and some of you may remember back in the mid to late 90s, there was this real stupid push, uh, especially from reviewers and general media, that nobody wants 2D, it's all about 3D. 3D is the way to go. So making a 2D game, well, why would you do that? And of course there was some pushback against it being what we now call a Metroidvania. Which is interesting in its own right. I'm not going to discuss that term. I think that term has its own history that can speak for itself. But what I find most interesting is I would think that logically this game took its inspiration from Super Metroid. You know, the other game that codified the Metroidvanias. No. No, this was actually inspired by Zeldas. Now, I started thinking about that and really analyzing and, and dissecting the level design of the castle. And the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. Because there's parts of the castle that are effectively overworld. There's not much there. There's some items, there's some enemies. Not really heavy in terms of puzzles, and it's mostly just getting from point A to point B. Then there's parts of the castle which are substantially denser. You know, one room leading to one room, leading to one room, leading to one room. And each one of these has its own little perils and trials and difficulties. And lots more enemies, lots more difficult enemies, bosses, and where the, all the actual items are, the relics and the equipment and so forth. Those are the dungeons. And the more I thought about it, the more I, comparing this more to a Zelda in terms of format than a Metroid actually made sense. Now, I don't know if Metroid could actually fall into that categorization as well. I'd have to think about it, and I haven't. But it was interesting to, to process going through this one. The other thing that was interesting is the leveling system they added in. Now, the leveling system itself is well designed. Uh, the way it works is enemy is X level, you are Y level, you gain experience relative to the variance. So if they're super higher level than you, you get a big chunk of experience. This is like in, say, Paper Mario, or Suikoden 2 is another good example of a game that does this. But of course, the reverse is true. If you're much higher level, you get nothing, and I believe at about level 60-ish, you get one experience from every enemy in the game, at which point, you know, first of all, why are you leveling beyond 60? The levels themselves give random stat-ups, which isn't great, but the levels do give you additional, you know, mana pool and hearts and health, which is nice. You know, just core stats. Now you might be thinking, well, okay, well, what's nice about the leveling system in general? Other than the fact that it's a good leveling system, it's pretty much anti-grind, which is awesome. It's there to make the game playable for unskilled players. That's their terminology, not mine. In other words, it's designed to be a form of difficulty selection, which would be a lot better if there was actually a mode to turn it off or something like that. But as is, it's interesting the approach they went into that, because they wanted people to be able to play this, because Castlevania games are hard, <laughs> for the most part. 
where to begin? Um, obviously, I'm going to be talking mostly about gameplay here. The music is, of course, ph phenomenal, at least in the first castle. In the second castle, I feel like the... Oh, yeah, by the way, spoilers, there's a second castle. In the, in the second castle, I feel like there's a lot less good design when it comes to the music and the utilization of that music. There's only a couple of exceptions to that. But for the most part, all the music really helps to highlight not just enjoyability of the game, but the area you're in. Uh, you know, going up the, the outer chapel or, or the walls or when you're going through the catacombs or whatever. The song always helps add to the scene, which really helps add to the atmosphere, which leads me to talking about the visuals. Now, this is great. It's easy to say the background visuals are excellent, and they are. The amount of effort and work it, they, they spent into manually crafting the design of the entire background of the castle is nuts. What really impresses me, though, and goes above and beyond, is a lot of the backgrounds are very busy. Now, normally that'd be a bad thing, and this is a problem a lot of games have, where the background is so busy, or doesn't really use its color properly, it becomes difficult to see what's going on amidst the noise. This game, with very few exceptions, I think the clock tower is the only real exception here, goes out of its way to vary up the palette usage, so that the foreground almost always is using either a different palette or a different shade or tone than the background clear distinction between the two, which makes it much easier to figure out what's going on and how to react to it. Also, most of the enemies in the foreground are usually, for lack of a better way to put it, more cartoony, you know, much brighter color usages, so you can almost always see them in contrast to the more stoic and uh, desaturated background. That's good design. And things like that are why I hold Soten up so high. Because they clearly put a lot of thought and effort into many details of the game. And that's why this is still an amazing game that is still incredibly fun to play even today. We've got incredible sprite work. The level of animation, there's what, something like 30 frames in just walking for Alucard? The level of, of detail in the sprite work is phenomenal. The animation is through the roof. Did you know there's actually multiple death animations depending on the final hit that killed you? You can burn, you can melt, you know, stuff like that. Um, I mentioned the leveling. Uh, there's a, a luck system based into the game, and luck determines the rate at which you get drops from enemies, as well as uh, equipment, and, or not equipment, sorry, um, crits. <laughs> the rate at which you critical hit, because crits are in this game. Now, I've been saying a lot of praise about this game. Let me pause to not praise this game. The drop rates in this game are stupid, in my opinion. Now, I'm not just talking about, like, the Chrysogram or anything like that. I mean, or, or the Ring of Varda. No, I mean just about any item drop in this game has way too low of a chance to drop. Unless you really crank your luck up, either by doing luck mode, which is a mode you can input in order to max out your luck and reduce all your other stats, or by having the Alucard set, which is the fake uh, uh, Alucard set, which... When you wear the whole thing, your stats suck, stats suck, but you get a bunch of luck, like 50 or something like that. That's still not great. Even when you crank it up, the drop rate is still very low. I've said this before and I'll say this again. I don't think any single player game can get away with justifying a drop rate lower than 10%. 10% drop rate should be the super rare stuff, my opinion. Now you're probably thinking, oh, well then you don't earn it. No, no, I don't think sitting in a spot and grinding qualifies as earning it. That is my opinion. I know a lot of people disagree with that. And as ever, I'm curious of your thoughts. But I do think the 1 in 256 drop rate items, of which there are multiple in this game, go way beyond acceptable. 
I actually did farm for the Chrysogram in this particular playthrough. It took me a little over seven minutes. Now, that's actually not bad. That was with the Alucard set, by the way, so my luck was boosted. But, um... That's still eight minutes just standing in a place doing this over and over and over again. Now, and I do, and I bring this up especially because in the best area, which you can only access the library, which sucks, you should be able to access that anywhere, you only, it, it only tells you what they drop if you've already seen it drop. Or maybe it doesn't. Uh, but the point is, there's always like the rare drop, which it doesn't have. Now, you can just use a walkthrough, but. Obviously, the game doesn't get credit for having a walkthrough, does it? Unless it comes packaged with it. We'll have to discuss that when we get to Earthbound. Hmm. Anyways, point being, um, you can see the best area, and that can give you some idea, but what I'm trying to say is, this is something that could have been just as well designed as so many other aspects of the game are. Imagine if the drop rates were substantially higher in general. Now, that would make the game easier, and that's unfortunate. You can always nerf the items down if that's a problem, or do something else. I'll talk about the item usage in just a moment. Is there a... Anyways, point being, imagine that you're going through and, you, and you're finding enemies and one of them drops an item. And you're like, ah! Now, regardless of the best year, regardless of everything else, you now know that enemy can drop that particular thing. That is now information that you have in your arsenal to decide what you do. As is, I bet most people play through this game and have no idea who drops what, because how would they? How would you ever know what drops any of these things? Now, you could argue that that shouldn't apply in some cases, like the super rare items, and I could see that. I could. Those should probably be the 10 percenters. But that still means there should be probably a chance to see one of those drop as you're going through and be like, oh, food for thought. While we're at it, while we're talking about negative things, the menu in this game is not good. The translation is not great. The voice acting is hilariously bad, or just bad, depending on which version you're playing. I played the PS4 version for this particular review, by the way. And a lot of the NARM was taken out, which is a shame, because that made it kind of cheesy and silly. And instead it just kind of went to being bad. I, I was not super impressed with the voice acting. Or the retranslation. I mean, and the translation wasn't exactly good to begin with, but they got rid of all the good parts of the translation. What is a man is completely gone from the new version. Come on, guys. Anyways, but yeah, the menu's not great. How many of you even know that you can sort your items in your weapon slot by having the weapon slot uh, selected, but don't actually hit it so you're selecting an item. Just have it highlighted and hit triangle, and then you can sort it by uh, equipable item types. How many of you even knew that? I found that one out like five years ago or something like that. There's also the fact that several of the items don't really tell you what they do, or at least they give vague hints, which, which that's kind of a Castlevania staple, so that's just whatever. But then there's using items. This is one of the other reasons that I don't real feel, really feel bad about items dropping a bunch, because you know how you use an item? Well, you pause the game, which mutes everything, of course, and then you, you go to equip, and then you change whatever we weapon or shield or weapon, weapon, or whatever you have equipped for the item, then you leave the, the menu, then you hit that button, and you use the item, then you go back into the menu and re-equip whatever you had equipped on board. That is an arduous and terrible process, and I would actually personally say, of the, the complaints I have about this game, that's the biggest one. Using items is awful in this game, and it just kind of de-encourages me from doing it at all. The only time I really do it is if I have the duplicator on a you know a second playthrough, in which case it kind of becomes more worth it, because you can just... Bam. <sighs> Also, if I might be so bold, I think some of the secrets, not all, 
are a little too obtuse. Some of the secrets have some kind of indicator, either that it's obvious that there's something there, or one of your companions will say something, you know, hey, I think there's something here. Or there's some kind of indicator, some kind of indicative, which I'll talk about that in just a second. Then there's the stuff that there's no way you would ever figure it out. And it shares this exact same problem with Super Metroid. There are just some items that, if you didn't have a guide or weren't checking every single square inch of the game, you probably wouldn't find. I don't really care for that kind of design. I prefer uh, inclination, what I, what I call exploration inclination. Which brings me back to positives about this game. This game has excellent exploration inclination, at least in, in the early on parts of the game. Exploration inclination, I, I don't think I've talked about this in these ruminations before. I've talked about it on stream quite a bit. It's when a game gives you an idea of where you might start searching. It does, it's not a giant marker, a neon sign that says there's this item here, although that can be nice in its own right. No, it's more like, as you're looking at the map, you notice there's this branch of the map that just goes over that way, and you don't know what's over there. And there's some secrets over there. That's inclination. There's things in the design of the game, either visually or in terms of what you can interact with, or what, in terms of what you can access at any given point in time, that lead you to think, maybe I should check over there. Anybody who's played Zelda knows this kind of thing at its most bare-bones level. When you see, like, a circle of rocks in Ocarina of Time, right? Or maybe you're wandering on the... To use Ocarina again, you're wandering the overworld, and there's this one tree way over there. What's that tree doing over there? That's exploration inclination. It gives you an idea of where to search, or the fact that you should search at all in that area. I like that. I, that's just opinion. That's just my, my perspective on things. But I love that type of level design in this game. It, it's not quite as good as Super Metroid in that. I'm sorry, I keep comparing this game to Super Metroid. It's kind of hard not to. But it still does it, and still does it well. It also does very excellent directional design. This game isn't what I would call linear by any respect. But it is my personal favorite type of linear. Um, I'm going I'm to borrow a quote that, that's kind of completely out of context. Imagine you're a person who has a dog, and you're wandering in a line. Now, if you track the path you're taking, it's very linear, right? You, you are going from point A to point B, and it's one straight line, right? But let's say you've got that dog on a leash, and, and the dog going... Now, the dog's still going on the same linear path, but it's going all over the place, right? I don't have a good term for that, and I should probably come up with one, because I love that type of game design. And that this game has that in spades. Um, you have... You, your path at the beginning of the game is pretty set. You encounter death, you lose your equipment, or use the bug to skip, skip it. And then you, you, know, you go up, and you go through the initial alchemy lab area, and you fight the first couple of bosses, and you go over here, and you go up, over, right, you know where you're going. It's all relatively linear, mostly because you simply do not have access to certain things until you get to the library. As soon as you get to the library, you can buy the stone, which you almost are assured to have enough money for, and it's relatively cheap, from the librarian. Upon buying the stone, you now have the access to open blue doors. This is a good time to mention that, as much as I know I'm in the praise section, I think the map could be better. It would be really nice if, for example, it would indicate the types of doors on the map, you know, like to show the blue doors or the red switches or whatever, or, you know, maybe some kind of visual indicator, or maybe just uh, something like uh, Breath of the Wild had this, where you could put your own little stamps on it and say, this is this and this is that, you know, kind of writing on the map kind of thing. Just that kind of feature being built in the game would be obvious, awesome. Obviously, they couldn't really do that in the PS1 era, but, you know, I mean, this game has been re-released twice. Come on, guys. Anyways, just just talking about that because 
Once you get to the library, you can go through the two blue doors. That means you can now head to the outer chapel on the upper left corner, or you can go down into the catacombs. And which one you do first is up to you. I always go this way first, because I love double jump. <laughs> because double jump is love, and double jump is life. But you can go whatever route you want to with that, and that's awesome. This is still the directional design thing. You're kind of shepherded to the library, because once you get to the library... There are a couple of places you are technically capable of reaching, but only if you really know what you're doing and you're skilled. And if you screw up, you've, you've screwed up and you'll probably die. There's, there's high-level enemies and there's stuff that hurts and there's a lot of obstacles that you don't really have the tools to bypass unless you really know what you're doing or are a speedrunner or are playing Richter. So you're kind of inclined to the library and then you're kind of inclined to these two. And once you finish these two, you've basically opened up the rest of the area. But by that point, there's not actually a lot left. The only things left at that point are the pseudo-secret stuff, which leads to the second castle. Now, the second castle... Actually, before I talk about the second castle, hang on. I want to talk about one other thing that I love about the level design. It's looping. Constantly, what you'll do as you're going through an area is you'll find a route that leads back to somewhere where you had just been. Like, you know, the most obvious example is the alchemy area, where there's like two or three times where you'll manage to open up a shortcut or knock out a wall, or move the statue out of the way, or whatever, which opens up another path through. And this adds more navigation, and more methods of traversal to the player. This is constant in the first castle, pretty much non-existent in the second castle, and is awesome. I, I love that. I love being able to open up things and give me more routes that I can use to get from point A to point B. And again, you know, the dog on the, 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 the leash kind of idea. Um, and yes, I did borrow that from... Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's that's who gave me that analogy. For anybody wondering, just go and give him give him credit there. So not only do we have looping shortcuts, but there's also this thing they do where I'm trying to think how this goes. There's a wonderful flow to the game. I speak a lot about gameplay flow. In fact, uh, on the six points of gameplay flow is number six, because being able to just smoothly move through the gameplay. I, I don't even know how to properly explain it because I'm terrible and stupid. Attacking, fighting, jumping, re redirecting, exploring, seeking, backtracking, fighting. There's a natural pace to the core loop of the game, and it flows smoothly, very, very smoothly. And it almost always crescendos right about at a boss encounter. There are actually quite a few bosses in this game, several of which are entirely optional. And I'm not even talking about the fact that the entire second castle is optional. I mean, even if you want to get the five artifacts in the second castle, there are quite a few bosses that are completely optional. But I love that overall boss. And there's a little breather section. Then you can start maneuvering through. The music usually takes a moment to recoup. You know, just excellent gameplay flow. But I said I'd talk about uh, the second castle. So I'm going to, I lied, because first I want to talk about enemies. Some of you saw my tour uh, Sith Warrior review, and I did a brief rumination of it, too. One of my biggest complaints, and it got a full gameplay negative by itself, was the space combat mode, which sucks. But the the thing I want to remind you of right now is you're going through the space combat mode, and there's turrets, which can take place of satellites or whatever, um, and or be on, like, a space station. There's turret, there's There's capital ships, which are also basically a turret boss, but whatever. And then there's enemy fighters. That's it. Three types of enemies with three types of well, two types of attacks that you have to avoid. That is the full extent of it. 
we were going through, we were reaching the point where I was going for Shaft and going to, to, to beat the game, and we were still encountering new enemy types throughout the course of this game. There is a tremendous variety to the enemies in this game, and most of them aren't all that special, but quite a few are. And this is important, too. This is something the Doom games tend to know very well. Enemy variety is good, but how you use the enemies is much better. And properly using the right enemies for the right areas is critical to making enemies actually interesting to fight rather than just whatever. You know, you have a big empty corridor and a guy who has a spear that attacks at range. Okay, that can work. How about you have a corridor that goes vertically and a guy with a spear that can attack at range. So now you literally can't even reach him and he's trying to area deny you as you're trying to descend or ascend to reach him. Just little stuff like that. It doesn't have to be su substantial. This game does that constantly, and I love it. This also is a good time to talk about bosses. I already mentioned bosses. There's quite a few of them, and there are there's a huge variety to it. But what I didn't remember until I replayed this time around is that there's a good variety in how you fight them, too. Most of them are in just a big, empty area. But still, most of their attacks and their patterns and what they do vary substantially enough that each fight actually feels different from the rest, with very few exceptions. I'd say, like, the Medusa fight is probably one of the only really disappointing fights in the game. Maybe the creature, while we're on that one. But most of the fights are excellent. In fact, one of my favorite fights is Orlocks, which is... The, there's a lot of stuff he does. I'm not going to summarize it here. Um, even uh, Gallimoth, you know, the, the, the kid Dracula boss, he still has a huge amount of attacks, which makes him interesting to fight, if not for the fact that he has... 12,000 HP in a game where you're just not doing that kind of damage. <laughs> Unless you're doing the shield rod trick as well. I suppose this is a good time as I need to talk about build variety. There's no talent trees. There's no materia or whatever in this game. What there are, however, is a variety of combinations of equipment. This is another thing I think this game does very, very well. While there are stats, and stats do matter, what matters a little bit more is how the weapon swings. There's a lot of variety to that. There's your punch... There's the little dagger jab, there's the big swing with the two-hander, there's kind of the mace, which kind of comes down and then out. There's the slice, straight slice, there's like the downward slice. You know what I'm talking about. If you played this game, there's there's 30-ish different attack styles in the various weapons of this game. In addition to the fact that there are several different possible strategies for getting through it, which include really leaning on the spells, which I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, you know, the, the the Street Fighter Command, you know, directional input spells. There's also the possibility of getting the relic upgrades and really leaning on your familiars, or, which I wouldn't recommend, by the way. Or, like, for example, you can use the Gas Cloud, which can wreck things, or you can run around as a bat. If you have the bat with the bat, then you can both shoot fireballs. Just stuff like that, right? There's quite a few different ways to push through this game, and quite a few ways to, to go to the end. But I think the, the best way to explain this is that I've had several discussions over the years about what the best weapon in the game is, and I've heard about four or five different options, all of which have a perfectly valid reason for being the best weapon. It depends on what you want. Do you want the Muramasa, with its with its tons and tons of uh, possibility to level it up with blood so it hits like a truck? Do you want to hit tons and tons... Uh, do you want to hit rapid fire while still moving and hit a huge arc in front of you? That's Chrysogram, my personal favorite. Do you want to be completely invincible and do 255 damage a frame while also healing? Well, that's the shield rod and the alucard. And so forth and so on. There are several options, is what I'm trying to get to. You can also just use something relatively more basic. You can just use the alucard sword, which hits pretty well and has the dash attack. 
You can use the big old two-hander if you want to. Um, you know, you can item spam if you have the duplicator. There are several ways to go through this game, and most of them are valid. I like that. I suppose I should talk about the Street Fighter inputs before I move any further, because I don't like them at all. Part, I, I've, I've, I've never been able to prove it, but I feel like this game just... The, the inputs just don't work periodically. <laughs> like, they just actively are like, no, no, we're not going to do this. <laughs> but there's also the fact that they're pretty finger-crampy, and given how useful the spells are, you, you kind of want to be using those fairly regularly. So unless you're really good at it, you're not. This is actually especially true in Richter mode, where basically his entire playstyle is constantly you know, finger-mashing and destroying your hand. Uh, you know, my sympathies for every speedrunner out there who runs Richter mode, because holy crap. If you haven't seen it, look, find a controller cam of Richter mode speedrun. I feel like there's better ways they could have done that. But this is especially true because even some basic input stuff like down, up, jump could have just been the dash button while in the air, or up, dash, or something similar like that, rather than having to, you know, do that. Just food for thought. Oh, also, probably the worst one by far would actually be the, the Bat Dash, which is... Whew, that's that's insanity. But I said I would talk about the second castle, and I lied, because now I'm going to talk about Re Maria Mode and Richter Mode really quickly. This game has a lot of replayability in general. Richter Mode and Maria Mode are wonderful additions to that. Hard modes, you know, you're, you're much more glass cannony, but much more destructive-y. And you can just absolutely wreck face if you know what you're doing. If you don't, then you're going to die before you even reach the first boss. I like that. I like the addition. I think it's a great thing to add into it. Obviously, Maria Mode was originally a Saturn inclusion, and now it's here in the PS4 version. I don't remember if they put it in the Xbox 360 version. I never played that version, so forgive me. But good inclusion, and it adds to the Republic. Okay, now I'll talk about the... No, I'm just lying. I'm lying. One of the other things I like about the game is there's a lot of visual and audio indicators. There's a little blue glow around you when your monitor refills. On the mono bar, there's little green markers, which tell you roughly, you know, the spell cost marker, so you have an idea of exactly how much money you have without hitting the menu. Although I kind of wish that was just a number, but let's not get into that. Uh, there's clear visual indicators of when you're hit with buffs or debuffs. There's a little audio thing that plays for basically everything. In fact, I would, again, relate this to a Zelda game, because there's audio indicators so that even if you aren't really paying attention to exactly one part of the screen, you can generally hear what's going on and continue to be kept up to date on, on how you're playing through. Okay, now I'll go ahead and talk about the Inverted Castle. Sorry, I'm just memeing at this point. I didn't like it as much as I remembered. It still gets credit. It still absolutely gets credit. The, the fact that they... I've said this for years... The fact that they managed to design the whole stage, the, the, the entire castle, such that it still worked and was still a challenge and was still a, uh, was still a platformer when flipped upside down is insane. And the fact that they accomplished that is, is fantastic. It still gets absolute credit for it. I still gave a positive for it. But the castle itself feels substantially more rust than the first part. The enemy placement is nowhere near as unique or interesting, with a couple of exceptions. The clockwork area is much better done, and so is the uh, outer chapel. Both of those are very well done. But for the most part, it's just kind of here. Most of the enemies aren't harder because they're more challenging in terms of what they do or how they do. They're harder because they have more health and they hit harder. The Guardians are the most obvious example of that. But even the first enemies you encounter when you go to the Inverted Castle will probably beat the crap out of you. 
There's also the fact that nothing really happens in the inverted castle. You go through and you, you fight bosses. There, there's no indicator. There's no nothing. It's just you're going through the castle. And as you're going through, you'll fight bosses because you stumble into them. They're not, you know, not all of them are exactly what you call logically positioned. Some of them are. Some of them are. And as you stumble into them, you get things. Five of those bosses give you pieces of Dracula, which are what unlock the ability to reach Shaft. Nothing in the game tells you that, by the way. It just says one of five, and it's like, okay. What, what am I getting these for? So that's, that's not great. The directional... Because part of the problem is, once you hit the inverted castle, you have the ability to go everywhere. Which, on the one hand, is nice, but on the other hand, there's nothing else in the game to indicate where you should go or why. All of that br brilliance of the exploration inclination, all of the brilliant directional design that I praised in the first castle is gone. Instead, it's just, uh, here's a giant open sandbox kind of a thing. Now that works for its own right, but for a new player who doesn't know what they're doing, you can see why this is kind of a <gasps> moment, especially given the difficulty jump. I still think it's good, don't mistake me, but I don't appreciate it nearly as much as I used to. And a lot of the bosses are, well, nowhere near as interesting as the bosses in the first area, with probably the big exception being the three phantoms, you know, Sifa, Grant, and... Uh, uh, Trevor. Excuse me, Trevor. I will say the Inverted Castle is fun. Absolutely, it's fun. It's fun to go around, it's fun to explore. The music selection isn't as good. You notice that? Like, there's just some weird usage of music in the Second Castle. And there's nowhere near... It, they didn't add any real new songs, except for, like, I think six new songs for the Inverted Castle. As opposed to, like, 20 of the one below. So there's a lot of repeat there. Like I said, it's just kind of like, uh... And the worst part is, like I said, there's no real story for it. Now, I haven't talked about the story yet, because there's not much story to this game. Don't worry, I do have something to say about story. And that is that I need a drink. Please forgive me. The story in this game... It can be argued whether or not Castlevania games had story before this. I would argue they didn't, really. Before this, we had Ness story, right? Whatever's in the manual, there's, okay, so there's a bad guy, he's evil, and I gotta beat him. Got it. And that's about what we got. Occasionally there's a little bit more, but that was the extent of it. Now, Soten took two other games, well, took, yeah, no, it took two other games and kind of tied them together, Rondo of Blood and Castlevania Three, and said, let's go ahead and really start telling a story. And that's the thing. The story isn't bad, it's just... It's the start of a story. It's like the very, very prologue for the Castlevania series. I have been told, I haven't watched the Netflix series, but I have been told a lot of the story that was established in this game is in fact told in the Netflix series. And that makes sense, because even though Soden isn't the first game chronologically, this is where the Castlevania franchise began, narratively speaking. Um, I mean that both in character and out of character. Out of character, it's when they started pushing, actually having a narrative in the games. In character... Well, this is the game where we find out what happened with Lisa. So let me give you a bit of a rewind here. I wrote down the timeline, because this is interesting. Lament of Innocence is the beginning. That's the origin story. That's how Dracula became Dracula. Cool. Uh, shortly after that was the event with Lisa, which is detailed in this game. Then we have... Oh, gosh, what do we got? So then we have... Three, Curse of Darkness, uh, Adventure, and then Belmont's Revenge, that's the two Game Boy games, 
then we have one, then two, then Harmony of Dissonance, then Rondo of Blood, which happens right before this game, and then Soten. It's... <laughs> the timeline's all over the place with this series. I suppose I... Uh, Zelda doesn't really have any room to talk on that one, does it? <clears throat> but the point is, uh, regardless of its position literally in the chronology, this establishes why the Castlevania series exists. Because Dracula found a human woman and fell in love with her and cared about her, and then she was brutally butchered and murdered by humans because they were stupid and ignorant. And weird thought, but he didn't like that all that much. And that is why Dracula decided to finally give in to chaos and become the chaos manifestation on the planet Earth, which then is why so many of the various monsters and creatures and magical things circle around him is because he is basically the focal point of all of chaos's influence within the world and blah, 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 and all that stuff. That's another interesting thing. Um, this game established the very first idea of the fact that Castlevania, the castle itself, is a creature of chaos. That it, it, now, they originally did this to explain why the castle changes how it looks every game. This was then taken further in future games. This ended up being uh, accidental foreshadowing. Because the idea is there's literally a creature of chaos in the chaos realm. We fight it in one of the GBA or DS games. I always get them confused. But we fight it in one of those games in the chaos realm. That's the thing that keeps manifesting this stupid castle and making it happen and all the fun stuff. And again, is the creature that has been connecting itself to Dracula this whole time. Fun stuff. Um, and then there's Maria, who's a love interest for some reason. I mean, in fairness, I'm pretty sure that anybody would fall for Alucard. He's gorgeous, he's smart, he's sensitive, he's kind, he's an immortal vampire. I mean, it, Edward would look at him and be like, Whoa! I got nothing on that. <clears throat> You know, super powerful vampire, etc. We also, this is also the first game to give any characterization for Dracula himself. The fact that he had a motivation other than I am the evil vampire lord. And there's a clear indicator, uh, indicative of the fact that he's sad. That he wishes that things weren't this way. That he doesn't actually want to be like this. It's just how it is. As we get to the future games, we find out more and more that he is sick and tired of being this and doing this. He doesn't want to do it at all. Which is funny, because you think you just take off the necklace then, but I don't want to get into that. And that's actually all I have to say about this game. It started having a story. It implied many things, and basically, like I said, it kicked off the, the franchise, narratively speaking. And arguably reinvented Castlevanias. Obviously not every Castlevania game after this is like this, but quite a few go down the Metroidvania style like this. And um, I'm looking forward... Some, I just picked, By the way, someone in chat's going to be like... Or someone in, in the comment section is going to be like, What do you think of Bloodstained? I haven't played Bloodstained as of the recording of this video. I played Curse of the Moon, which I loved. But Curse of the Moon is a Castlevania game, not a Metroidvania game. So... I don't know how it compares. I'm actually really looking forward to finding that out. But for now, thank you for joining me in my thoughts. I'll see you next time, guys.